Guys, my name's Nick. Uh, I am the lead pastor here. Happy to bring God's word to you this morning. If, um, well, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, let me have the ushers bring you one. Uh, would you mind raising your hand if you need one? We'll get one to you. We're going to get into, keep your hand up so they can see, and uh, we're going to get into Luke's gospel this morning. We've uh, been here for a little while. Um, <clears throat> now we're in Luke chapter 4. Uh, verse 31 is where we're going to start. Um, if you don't own a Bible, those Bibles are our, our gift to you. Uh, if you want to give them away to a friend um, or neighbor, feel free to take one home and do that. Let me ask you before I, I read here, I'm just curious. You know, every now and then, I don't know how often it happens, but um, every now and then I guess Christmas falls on Sunday, right? So Christmas Day this year is Sunday. And uh, I was trying to figure out what we should do. Um, and I was just curious, you know, how many of you guys, if you want, will even be here, would want to do a Sunday service, on, you know, on Sunday? Or how many of you guys would want to do uh, like a Christmas Eve type service? Um, so if I could ask, how many, first of all, will even plan on being here Sunday uh, or Christmas kind of weekend? How many of you guys will be here in town? You're not going to be gone somewhere else. Okay. You guys want to do like a Christmas Eve type service? That's what I've been hearing. Is that kind of the overall consensus? Does that sound better than 10? I just feel for the... I assumed if we did the Sunday service um, as normal on Christmas Day, that you you right now would be looking at the setup crew, the uh, the preaching, the music, the teardown. It would be me. I assume that. Uh, so part of me wants to do Christmas Eve too, but I, I just want to throw that out there to see what you guys thought. If you have ideas, uh, let me know. It's going to be a little while for me because I also have a baby due. Who knows when, when that little guy's coming? Uh, it could be right around there. So January 13th is the actual due date for my wife. Um, all right. So we'll, we'll be informing you further on, on what we'll be doing for Christmas, but I'm, I'm excited either way. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's where we are in, in, in the gospel. Luke chapter four. Uh, we're going to read verses 31 down to uh, verse 37. Okay, guys, let me read it, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and jump in. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his te- teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Pray with me, guys. Uh, Jesus. I don't get tired of seeing um, evidence of your glory, 
evidence of your power, your majesty. We don't get tired of it, Lord, because you wield your power, you wield your authority, unlike any other king. You use it for our good, for our salvation, for our redemption. You use your power, you use your authority to restore, to renew, to liberate and set free. Jesus, I'm asking this morning that you would, in the little time that we have together, you would draw near and do that in our midst here for those of us gathered. God, we come in with so many things gripping our hearts. So many things that we could be worried about. So many things that we need your help with. And we're asking you to come and speak. We're looking to you as our only hope and we're saying, please, come God and set us free. So I ask you, give me help, Lord. Give me your words. Let me be your mouthpiece and give us all ears to hear in this room what you would say to your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, um, for those of you that weren't here last week, let me just kind of um, uh, give you the, the brief kind of recounting. Last week, we saw Jesus there come to his home crowd, his hometown boys there in Nazareth, and he, he, he announces his identity in essence. He's the, he's the uh, Messiah. He's the, the servant from Isaiah. He's the Redeemer who's come. He announces his mission to these people there in Nazareth in their synagogue. He tells them what he's going to do. He's here to liberate the captives. He's here to set free, give sight to the blind. We watch him uh, announce all these things in the synagogue there uh, with his family and friends and neighbors all listening in. But then we watch their response. We see how this crowd responds to this announcement and it's not with applause. It's not with, with tears of joy or, or, or songs. They respond to him with rejection. With rejection. In fact, verses 28 and 29 of Luke 4, I wanted to just read to you again because I'm going to make a note here as we transition into our text. This is how they respond. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him, Jesus, drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Not the kind of response we would expect. At least, yeah, I suppose it is the kind of response you would expect from fallen, dark, sinful men. But it's still heartbreaking to watch it happen. Now, as we transition um, into our text this morning there, verses 31 to 37, I actually wanted to make an observation regarding uh, the last part of last week's text in, the, in those verses we just read, verses 28 to 29. In the Greek, um, now stick with me, don't, don't worry too much about the Greek, all right? But the, the Bible, the New Testament is written in the Greek, 
And then the Old Testament, there's actually a Greek translation. Sometimes there are interesting things that come out uh, with the different word choices that the authors use. And I just wanted to bring something out to you here as we, as we open. Because in the Greek Old Testament and New Testament, the word translated in verse 29 of Luke 4, drove him out, is actually rich with significance. I didn't want to pass it by. So stick with me for a moment. This word translated in verse 25, or 29, drove him out, is the word used to describe what God does with Adam. In the Garden of Eden, once Adam had become unclean in his sin, right? We read in Genesis 3, 24, he drove out the man. Adam, you cannot be in my presence in your sin. He drove out the man. It's the word used to describe what God planned to do with the unclean nations as Israel was entering the holy land of Canaan. I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but you remember God calls out Israel and then he brings them into a land. But when he's bringing them into the land of Canaan, there are other nations there. And they're filled with their idolatries. They're unclean. They're, they're sinful. And God says, listen, this is Exodus 34, 24. I will cast out, it's the word again, nations before you. So this unclean nations, they're going out. And it's the word that describes what Israel was to do with the things that had been contaminated with plague and sin and any other form of uncleanness. So as they get the the tabernacle or the temple going, God says, listen, if there's any uncleanness, if there's any sin, here's what you need to do. You need to drive that stuff out. You need to cast it out. You need to take it outside the city and get rid of it because I can't have that in my presence. And then interestingly enough, it's the word that's used uh, throughout Luke's gospel to describe the casting out of unclean spirits. When Jesus comes and he casts demons out of people, it's that same word. He drives the demons out. So it's the kind of word that you and I would use to describe like what I do Wednesday night when it's trash night. Seriously, it's time to take the trash out. You get it, you know, you go to all your little cabinets, you pull it all out, you take it out to the street, then they pick it up and they drive it as far away from us as we can get it because nobody wants the trash around you. The sun clean, it's filthy, it's dirty. And here it is, it's the word used to describe what Jesus' hometown crowd, his family, friends, and neighbors do in response to his teaching. In their synagogue, they rose up and they drove him out of the town. He is the piece of trash that they want as far away from them as possible. He is the unclean thing. We treat him like the sinner, like the unclean thing. Get out of here, blasphemer. This will come back into play uh, at the close of this message. That's why I'm opening this way. But I just want you to realize, this is insane. How we respond to the, the Son of God who's come to save. We treat Him like the unclean thing. Get out of here. We drive Him out. Now, as we transition to our text, uh, let me ask you, how, how would you respond in the face of such rejection? 
Like if you were Jesus, we, we tend to kind of only focus in on Jesus' divinity, right? He's God, we, but we, we forget he also took on humanity fully, right? And he was tempted in every way like us and yet without sin. And so how would you feel in this moment if, if your family, your friends, your neighbors, people you grew up with are saying, they're driving you out like a piece of trash, His response is incredible because where you or I in the face of such rejection would either burn with anger, that'd be one response. We would either burn with anger or we would kind of dissolve into depression. We'd either get hot or we'd just go cold. Either way, we'd kind of turn inwards. Where we would do that, he instead moves out in love. He keeps going out. Looking for people to love. He doesn't pledge vengeance. He doesn't throw a pity party. He simply leaves Nazareth and goes, we read in verse 31, down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee. Say, okay, you reject me. You're not interested in what I have to say. You're not interested in my love. That's fine. I'm not going to throw a pity party and I'm not going to take vengeance. I'm just going to move on and I'm going to go to a city and look to love them. Let's go to Capernaum now. He just doesn't, he doesn't miss a step in his mission. I would be destroyed at this point. He's moving on. In love. Now, as we move into uh, verses 31 to 37, um, it is Jesus' word that comes clearly into focus. That's why in your handout you could probably see, uh, I titled it, What is this word? Because that's what all the crowd, that's what the narrative is focused in on. If you, if you notice, there's mention of his teaching in verses 31 and 32. There's mention of his word in verses 32 and 36. There's reference to his rebuke in verse 35 and his command in verse 36. It's, it's words, it's Jesus' words that are kind of carrying the day in our text here this morning. And therefore, uh, I want to organize my thoughts with reference to Jesus' word. So three major headings that I'm going to um, organize my thoughts under. First, Jesus' word is authoritative, verses 31 to 32. Second, Jesus' word is powerful, verses 33 to 35. And third, Jesus' word is healing, verse 36. So first, Jesus' word is authoritative, There in verses 31 through 32 in particular is where you see it. His word is authoritative. Now, just for a moment, um, sit with me in this. Um, I thought, gosh, no better, no better time to kind of meditate on the authority of Christ. Uh, then, then you, while the nation is kind of reeling and, and, and in turmoil in response to, you know, what happened in the election last week. Where we're all concerned and, and people are worried and there's rioting and you're still seeing it in the news. You're going, man, what is, this is not good. People still kind of upset about what happened. And in one sense, it is certainly right to approach the outcome of the election with, um, sobriety and seriousness, right? Because the president of the United States, that is the highest authority in our land. And, it's probably the highest authority in all the world. And so it's a big deal. But man, what a great time to think about the authority of Christ that's higher still. 
It's higher still. I, I, there's probably no better text, um, for this, thinking about how the authority of God relates to the authority of man than John 19, 10 and 11. Um, I don't know if you remember, but in kind of the last hours of Jesus's life, um, he has submitted himself to the mob that came out against him, and now he's standing before Pilate. But he's not, he's not being all that cooperative. And Pilate's like amazed at this guy. He's amazed at Jesus. He's like, what are you doing? This is what he says. He says, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? That's Pilate to Jesus. If you don't cooperate here, Jesus, don't you realize I have authority in these matters to give you life or to kill you? And Jesus responds like this. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Do you hear that? In other words, in other words, Pilate, don't be fooled. There is an authority over you that gives authority to you. And his name is not Caesar. His name is Yahweh. And as we keep reading and find out in the Gospels, his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the one, Matthew 28, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. All authority to our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, Jesus the Christ. So, Pilate, you can only do what I permit you to do. What you are about to do to me, it's because I authorized it, in essence. I'm I'm letting you do this. You can crucify me, Rome, Pilate, Jews, but you cannot kill me. When you nail me to the tree, you will actually unleash a torrent of grace on the world and accomplish the will of my Father. Every single king, however high, however important, on the earth is but a servant of the Most High. You see that? There is a king of kings. There is a Lord of lords and his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. Therefore, if we are to fear anything, it's not presidents or um, policies or propositions. Some of the propositions passed in California, I don't like them. (laughs) But I don't We don't fear those things. We fear God, Christ alone. Right? Now, um, Jesus starts to evidence his authority here in Capernaum. He starts to show this this synagogue here in Capernaum the authority that he has. And he does it uh, first through his teaching through his teaching, um, as he's teaching them in their synagogue. We're, we're not told what he says. We're, we're just told in verse 31 that they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished. Why? For his word possessed authority. 
They just heard something different in this brother. They're like, what is the deal with this teacher? We're astonished by this. His word possesses authority. And to understand why they would be astonished, you got to know what was typical uh, among the rabbis or the scribes of, of Jesus' day. They did not prize originality like Americans do. It wasn't like, give me the latest and the greatest, the newest. If it's old, I don't care anymore. It's out. No, no, no. The scribes, the, the people that would teach in the synagogues in Jesus' day, uh, what they tried to do was validate their interpretations of the Old Testament by, by quoting and showing how it, it was grounded in all the, the traditions of old and the, the great teachers that came before them. That's what they tried to do. But then here comes Jesus into the synagogue and he's teaching from the Old Testament on his own terms and on his own authority. He's not quoting other rabbis, not quoting other, uh, other scholars. He's saying, let me tell you what this text means. Here's where I'm, where I'm getting kind of an idea. This will kind of flesh out perhaps what his teaching looked like. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, there's this crazy scene in the middle of it where Jesus is talking to these crowds and, and he, he all of a sudden just kind of, I don't want to say rips, <laughs> He kind of, he kind of rips into the interpretations of the Old Testament in his day. He starts doing this thing where six different times he essentially says something like this. You've heard it's, it, it's said, and he kind of quotes the Old Testament. But then he goes on and he says, but I say to you, and in that he starts to push against the false interpretations, the superficial interpretations of the law by the teachers in Jesus' day. You've heard that it was said, but I, but I say to you. And it's crazy because he's, he's not quoting the rabbis and, and, and the people before him. He's actually kind of contradicting them in those moments. It would be like, if, if I could give an image for you, it would be like if I were to march into the Supreme Court and kind of start telling the justices, start telling the court how they're to interpret the Constitution of the United States of America. I just start saying, hey, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. As some people might think that something like that needs to happen in our judicial system. But... The fact remains, they're going to sick the guards on me, right? Who let the lunatic in? (laughs) Unless you're George Washington, unless you're one of those guys who originally wrote the Constitution, get out of here. Who are you to act like you have the one true opinion on the matter? And that's what Jesus is doing in these synagogues. And that's why they're going, oh, shoot, who is this? Who is this? He's going to talk like this. He's not talking like an interpreter of the law. He's talking like the author of it. You hear that? He's not talking like a man. He's talking like God. Because he is God. And so because Jesus is God, what he says about any issue is the final word on the issue. Do you hear me? He can take anything in our life and say, you've heard it was said, but I say to you, and that is the last word on that issue, period. So, let me ask you guys, and ask myself, uh, does his word have authority in our life? If Jesus' word is authoritative, we have to ask, our question, ask ourselves the question, does his word have authority in our life? 
has the final word on the issues that we face? To put it another way, which interpretation, um, which word wins out when the Bible says one thing, but my, my flesh, my friends and peers, uh, my culture say another? And this is a big deal in our day, right? Not just with kind of what policies you want to put in place in America, but even things as simple as what kind of clothes you're going to buy. Is it cosmopolitan that's going to tell you that? Or are you going to look to Peter where he says women should dress modestly or whatever it is? We look into the Bible as our authority on every issue. Jesus, tell me, tell me how I should spend my money. What should I think about money? Am I getting, am I getting it from his word or am I getting it from the, the pundits on the radio? Or how should I think about the state of the world? Is it actually all falling apart and in chaos like the news anchors are saying? Or is my God, is his throne still established in heaven? You know, is his authority the final authority in our lives? Is, does his word, uh, does his word have authority on every issue? Or do we kind of like, all right, we'll give you Sunday morning, but come on, you have nothing to say to me when I'm at work or when I'm on the internet or when I'm watching TV. Yes, he does. And are we giving him that authority? I'll tell you what, there are a thousand, you might not realize it, but all over your Facebook feed, all over the news, there are a thousand voices ready to take the place of authority in your life and tell you how to think about every issue. And there's only one voice that actually has that kind of authority. And we should give it to him. He's here this morning and he's speaking to us through his word. It's his voice. It's his word. It should have the final word on every issue in our lives. Now, second uh, heading I, I mentioned at the beginning. Jesus' word is not only authoritative, it's also powerful. This is verses 33 through 35. Jesus' word is powerful. So, as we move into verses 33 through 35, we watch as Jesus now comes face to face with the demonic. And in this encounter, we learn something else about his word. It's powerful. It's powerful. Now, think with me about this for a moment. Um, one of the biggest complaints, I don't know if you've ever tried to promote Christianity in the public square, to your friends, to your family, whatever it is, to your co-workers, but one of the biggest complaints people raise against the church is that we're just a bunch of hypocrites. We're just a bunch of hypocrites. Meaning, essentially, that our words and our deeds, they don't match up. We talk a lot about grace. We talk a lot about righteousness. We talk a lot about justice. We talk a lot about whatever. But our lives aren't in sync with that. We deny with our lives what we proclaim with our lips. And so, we're just a bunch of hypocrites. The word and the deed, they don't match up. That's what will come our way. And sometimes very justifiably so. But here's what you've got to love about Jesus. No one, no one can say this about him. Sure, they could say it about me because I'm a sinner saved by grace, growing little by little every day. And am I a hypocrite in many ways? Yes. I'm not claiming to be Christ. I pray that I grow in, in authenticity. I pray that I grow in conformity to his image. But we direct people to our Savior, and when we look at our Savior, here's what's awesome. You cannot call him a hypocrite. You want to know why? 
Because with him, the word and the deed are actually one. Hear me on this. Hear me. His word is not just the way he communicates his thoughts. It's actually one of the ways he accomplishes his will. Not just authoritative, but powerful. He uses his word not just to preach the kingdom of God, but to manifest it. He speaks and it happens. The word and the deed are like the same, kind of like God at the very beginning. Let there be light. The word created the reality. The word of Christ works. You hear that? His word works. So when a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, cries out with a loud voice in the synagogue there in verse 33. Jesus can both silence and evacuate the demon with just a word from his mouth. Verse 35, be silent and come out of him. And this demon just packs up his bags and goes home. That's it. That's all it took. He didn't have to flex any muscle. He didn't need a special weapon or something like that. He just spoke. And the demon goes, all right, I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with that kind of authority, that kind of power. His word works. Word and deed are one in our Savior. His word is powerful. Now, it's... um, significant that the first miracle of Christ that Luke records is an exorcism. So the the kind of expelling of demon. I think it's significant that this is the first miracle Luke highlights for us in his gospel. It kind of shows you how fundamental the conflict or how the, the conflict between Jesus and Satan is fundamental to his mission. And that's why back in in the beginning of Luke 4, you know, after his baptism, where does he go? First to kind of deal with social justice issues? No. First to the wilderness to face the devil. I mean, this is the fundamental conflict in Jesus's, in Jesus's mission. This is why he came. But now think with me, because no one in our day really takes uh, Satan or, or, the, or the devil or demons or whatever very seriously. Right? Our modern culture just kind of mocks it, like Satan is just more of a joke to be laughed at than an enemy to actually be uh, respected. I, I don't know what your, um, what your neighborhood's like for Halloween. I mean, we just had a perfect example of this, right? Um, I, <laughs> so so I, I am used to houses being decked out for Christmas, you know? Um, and I like that. I like the little elves and Santa and the happy lights. That stuff's nice. Uh, I like walking around. I, well, me and my family, when I was a kid, even we'd go driving and looking for Christmas lights, things like that. Um, and I'll do that with my kids. I was not prepared for the way that my hood celebrates Halloween. Okay, um, we're talking about like rated R, like people hanging from trees and. Design. When I went trick or treating with the kid, with the kids, they're like zombie babies, like crawling out of garages and stuff. It was wild, you know, and. Um, Uh, It just kind of drove home for me the fact that we kind of don't take this seriously. We just kind of think it's it's this fun little joke. You know, Satan is kind of a thrill to be had. He's a costume you can wear. He's a good night out on the town. But he's not something to take seriously. 
But let me tell you, Jesus takes him seriously. Dead seriously. I think that's why Luke, out of the gate, highlights so much of the conflict Jesus has with the satanic, the demonic realm. And and Jesus, in fact, orients his whole mission with reference to the devil. John tells us this in 1 John 3, 8. The reason, the reason the Son of Man, the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus thinks the devil is important enough to come down from heaven to destroy. That's how he orients his mission. And we're out here playing and talking about, you know, whatever. Zombies and silver bullets and wooden stakes and having a great old time. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. But amazingly, all Jesus has to do (laughs) is speak. He doesn't need the silver bullet. He doesn't need the wooden stake. He doesn't need the pocket full of garlic or whatever. He just speaks and the devil's work comes to nothing. This kid, this, this, this demon just packs up his bags and runs. I'm out. So there's something we need to face in all of this as well. Jesus' word is not only authoritative now, it's powerful. But here's the question. Do we believe that it is. Um, we remember that we came from the synagogue in Nazareth and now we're in Capernaum. Well, uh, recall with me about Nazareth and the fact that, they, that, that Jesus said, I can't do any works here. Prophets without honor in his hometown. Mark, um, in Mark 6, 6, in his gospel says, um, or I'm sorry, Mark and where am I? Oh, Matthew. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Matthew in Matthew 13:58, talking about Nazareth, says that he did not do, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, this whole synagogue scene in Nazareth and their rejection of him, he couldn't do any works. Couldn't do any mighty works there. But then he comes to Capernaum. And we're going to watch throughout this gospel, mighty work after mighty work. And part of what we need to assume is that that's because people there believed he could do it. They believed what he was saying. They they, they believed that his word works. And um, in fact, in Nazareth, this is Mark 6, 6, uh, we're told that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled, how can you guys not believe? That's Nazareth. When he comes to Capernaum, we're told in certain scenes, like Luke 7, 9, that he marvels because of their faith. Because of their faith. He's marveling. That's the kind of church we want to be. That he comes in here and goes, no way. I can't believe how much they're expecting my word to accomplish in their midst. No way. This is awesome. We want them to marvel like that. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, do we believe that his word works? Under the first point, I kind of asked if we believe in the truth of it. Do do we give his word authority? Do we believe that his, his word is the final word on the issue? Now I'm asking, do we believe in the power of it? Do we expect that his word can change us? Do we expect that in this room, even now, his word is doing something? Do we expect him to change molecules, to change reality, to change facts because he spoke? Do we approach Christ 
like the centurion whose servant lay ill. We're going to get to the, in this, uh, we're going to get to the story in Luke's gospel. It's chapter seven, but this is just a little preview for you. It's amazing. This guy's servant is laying ill, right? He's about to die. And so the centurion sends a representative to Christ and because he knows Jesus could do so. He knows his word works. And uh, Jesus is coming into his house. He's ready to go. But the centurion says, no, 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 no. Don't come into my house. I'm not even worthy to have you come in. Listen, I know how powerful you are. Just what? Say the word and my servant will be healed. You just speak. And his body, it's going to get better. I want to have that kind of faith in the word of Christ. Let me tell you something. Uh, if I could just be real with you. When I pray, when I pray for God to remove the tumor on my wife's liver, it's not just a courtesy. It's not just a courtesy like, oh, you're the deity and oh, you asked me to pray. It's because I believe that God has the authority and the power to just speak over her and tumors, however big they are, however cancerous or not they are, can disappear. You guys, I've had friends where that has happened and doctors get saved. I just, Jesus can do this. We have to ask ourselves, is Sunday just a ritual or do we come because who else has the words of eternal life but him? You speak and things change. Now you might will something else and that's okay. But I believe you can do it. That's for sure. Third point. Jesus' word is not only authoritative and powerful, we now see that his word is healing. His word is healing. And I I love this. We're going to linger here. It's going to be kind of the place where we'll close. The end of verse 35 uh, directs us towards uh, the final point here that I want to bring out. Um, look Look at the end of verse 35 again. There's a little note at the end. It's awesome. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him. So it sounds like this real violent experience just because Jesus spoke. But then we read this. He came out of him, having done him no harm. Isn't that awesome? So what you have is this emphasis at the end of it that, yeah, it was this violent, crazy thing, but when it was all said and done, this guy was just fine. In fact, he's never been better. <laughs> he's never been better. And here what we have is kind of this signal towards the, the ultimate goal that Jesus has in, in, in speaking his words of authority and power. And that is to heal. <laughs> that is to bring healing. He's not just after kind of destroying the works of the devil. Destroying the works of the devil are a means to an end. So when he speaks and he destroys the works of the devil and the demon just leaves, the goal is not just destruction to actually restore this brother, to restore this man who'd been oppressed, to restore God's fallen creation back to himself. There's healing that God, that Jesus is after when he speaks. He wants to heal you. He wants to heal me with his words. I just 
feel like continuing to kind of reflect on the state of our country with you, because I know probably a lot of you are there, but why, why is America in the turmoil that it's in right now in many ways? I'll tell you why, I think. Because president has authority, has power, but oftentimes when they have authority and when they have power, they don't wield it like Jesus does. And so now as Trump steps into office, the people are going, what is he going to do with his authority and his power? I don't think he's going to use it to to restore, to heal, to make America great again or whatever. That's, this is not my personal opinion. I'm just saying this is what's happening. I think he's going to use it to destroy. And you know what? We have good reason to think these sorts of things happen because you open up your history book and this is the story on repeat. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That adage was crafted because this is what we witness as a pattern in history. People take their authority, they take their power, and they use it not for the good of others, but to build themselves up at the expense of others. And we get to this text and we see, no, 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 no. That is not how the king of kings is going to wield his authority and his power. Even though he has more authority, more power than all the kings of history combined, he takes his authority and power and uses it to heal, uses it to restore, uses it to bless, uses it to take a man who'd been shackled for who knows how long and set him free. And he's doing that in this room with you and with myself. He speaks a word. And in one and the same moment, the oppressors go running off and the oppressed come running home. Two things I want to bring out under this third point um, as we close. First, Christ's word uh, can work without faith. <laughs> I just I just labored in the previous point to say that uh hey listen are we believing that he his word works because in Nazareth when they didn't have faith he just walked on and could do no works there. Now I'm saying I'm saying his word can work without faith and here's where I'm going with this um I, this might not be evident on the face of the text but bear bear with me. I think one of the most amazing things we learn from exorcisms like this is that God's word can work to bless an individual that doesn't have the strength to believe him for it. Let me read that again because I think it's that important. God's word can work to bless an individual that doesn't have the strength to believe him for it. This guy is possessed by a demon. I don't know what that's like, but I'm pretty sure that as the demon was was yelling at Jesus, that this guy was not having faith here. That he was in trouble. He's trapped. He's captive. He cannot have the faith to, to kind of look at Jesus and go, save me. He is lost. That's what it means to be possessed in this way, it seems to me. 
And I think that this observation is important for us. It's just a counterbalance. I do believe that, that God, that we should be believing in, in Christ and we want to look to Him in faith and, and, and we, and that God moves as we expect Him to move. I do believe that. But too often we could kind of major in that alone and forget that that's not the only story the scripture shows us. Because we might end up on this other side feeling like I gotta muster up faith or nothing good's gonna happen. Like I gotta squeeze this out or I won't see a miracle. But what we see in the scriptures, check it out. There's a couple of other ways that God sometimes works in the midst of people apart from just that individual's faith. First off, miracles can come to us simply because God's sovereign in his grace. He just speaks and it happens. Period. End of story. Now, he might call the individual to faith after that miracle. But the faith was not required for the, 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 the working of that miracle. Jesus just looks at people with compassion and he says, that's awesome. I got you. And that's it. Sovereign grace. Or here's other things that we see in the scriptures. And I think it's in play here in Capernaum with this individual. Miracles can come because of the prayers and faith of those around us. <laughs> Though I seriously doubt this demoniac himself had faith of any kind, as we've seen, there was an environment or a context. In Capernaum, there was a congregation that did have faith, that was expecting Jesus to move. And so, even though this individual might not have had any faith at all, the congregation was calling down blessing upon him, or was expecting Jesus to move. This is why we read texts like we do in James. The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. Whose faith? The faith of the one praying. Or, the prayer of a righteous person has great Power. This James 5, 15 and 16. So sometimes, and here's what I want you to hear, uh, there are going to be trials that you go through. There are going to be things that you face where you don't have enough faith to even get out of bed, let alone trust God's word to do something amazing for you. It feels like, here's, here's what a trial is, you guys. A trial is to, it takes you to the end, the limit, the edge of your faith. That's what trials do. They take you to the end of yourself. So it is an un, it's an unbearable burden that we place on people if we say, hey, listen, unless you muster up the faith, you can't, you're not going to get out of this. No, that's the time when we point them to God's sovereign grace. That's the time when we as a community come around that individual and we call down the blessing they don't believe they're worthy of or they don't believe God can do. You hearing me on that? Some of you might even be there right now. Like his word, it doesn't work for me. I've prayed and prayed and prayed and it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's when, man, community comes around. I understand you're struggling. That's that's all right. We're here. Let's pray. We know he's good. We know he's good. So this man owes his healing not to his own faith, (laughs) but to the faith of those around him and above all to the sovereign grace of Christ who just says, yeah, today's the day. You're free. You're free. Second thing, and this is where we'll close, that I wanted to bring out um, here from this last, last section. Christ's word 
can clean the unclean. He works to bless. He works to heal. His word heals, or I'm sorry, his word cleans the unclean. There's this tension highlighted in the narrative between uncleanness and holiness. I wonder if you saw it. And this is kind of where we get back to some of the stuff I mentioned at the beginning. The man we are told in verse 33, the demoniac, has the spirit of an unclean demon. And I thought that was interesting because I'm like, is there any such thing as a clean demon? I don't think there's a clean demon. I don't think you, like that one's clean, let him in. You know, like that's not how it works. They're all unclean. So why that detail? Well, I think it sets up the tension and why the demon hates Jesus so much. And what does he bring out about Jesus? This this description of the demon sets up the contrast and conflict with Jesus. Because we're told, Jesus is, verse 34, the Holy One of God. So the demon screams out, the unclean demon screams out, because the Holy One is here. The Holy One is here. And he's in trouble. He knows it. In our text, Jesus, the bearer of the Holy Spirit, which has been the major burden of of Luke's narrative to this point, right? He's been baptized in the Spirit, filled in the Spirit, anointed in the Spirit, empowered, led by the Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit-filled one, the the one who bears the Holy Spirit, Jesus is coming against the devil and this unclean spirit of this demon. Think with me. The one that Nazareth drove out as an unclean thing. You're the unclean, Christ. Get out of here. Get out of our midst. The one that Nazareth drove out as an unclean thing is the one who has truly come as the only holy one to drive the unclean things out of us. The one we called filthy, we called dirty, we called forsaken by God is the one who comes into this room to to, to clean up our filth, our dirt. And I thought, man, maybe some of us come into this room this morning and we just feel filthy. We just feel dirty. We just feel unclean. Maybe something you've done in your past or last night. Or maybe something done to you that just makes you feel ashamed, makes you feel filthy, makes you feel guilty, makes you feel unclean. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus does not do with your uncleanness what the world will do with it. The world will exploit it. And when you when you expose this sort of thing, they'll drive their fingers into it. They'll take advantage of it. Jesus, the Holy One, amazingly comes To wash the filth in us. He speaks words that clean. Words that free. Words that heal. Because in the end. We know what will happen with our Savior, right? He's going to be driven out like the unclean thing. He's able to kind of absorb the uncleanness of all these people around him as he walks through his earthly ministry. He's just taking their uncleanness. He's just absorbing it until finally he can take no more and the Father can take no more. And therefore he is driven out 
and treated like the unclean thing, the uncleanness that he took from us. He pays the penalty for it. The, the, the scene in Nazareth of his rejection is just a foreshadow of what's coming for him in Calvary. And that scene later, he's not going to pass through their midst miraculously because his hour had come. Instead, he's going to surrender himself to Judas and the Jews, to Pilate and Rome. And he's going to go to the cross and he's going to be crucified. He's going to be treated like the filth dragged outside the city and disposed of like a piece of trash. But he's going to do all of that so that he can come into this room this morning to you, his bride. And you know that text in Ephesians 5? It's awesome. It says that, that uh, he comes to us and picks us up kind of out of the dirt. And now he cleanses us, cleanses his bride by the washing of the water of his word. You hear that? He's going to come and he's going to speak all the filth, all the uncleanness, I paid it. All the dirt, all the junk, I paid for it. Let me wash you. Let me clean you. Let me bless you. Let me heal you. Let me restore you. That's the move of the Savior in the gospel. He comes out of the wilderness, moving against the devil, and moving for humanity to wash an otherwise filthy people so that he can present them on that day before himself spotless, without wrinkle, pure. Let's pray. God, thank you that your word is authoritative, your word is powerful, your word is healing. God, thank you that even in the times when we struggle to believe, you can move towards us just by your grace. We believe, help us with our unbelief. Lord, come and do mighty works in our midst. Come and convince people here that they're clean in your sight because of what you did on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for taking it all and for washing us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.